Welcome to Refining Purpose. I'm Darla Cazzarelli. With me today, I have Allison Cherry, emancipated foster youth, USC alumni, licensed clinical social worker. She has her own private practice and works for the LA County DCFS Adoptions Division, and her specialization is trauma therapy. It is such an honor to have you here today. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, could you tell us your story and how it relates to your career path? Okay. Um, just to kind of make it short and sweet, I was raised in New York. I had a typical family, mom, dad, a brother. We lived in the suburbs of Babylon. My mom was a nurse. My dad uh, <clears throat> excuse me, worked in diagnosing cancer. And everything was fine. And we moved to California when I was about 10, and then things fell apart. Uh, my dad was doing cocaine and uh, smoking marijuana, and my mom uh, missed her friends and family back home. She became depressed, started drinking alcohol, and which led to um, she went on prescription drugs to help manage her anxiety and depression. From there, um, few years later, well, actually a year later, my mom took her life when I was 11 and my father spiraled into his drug abuse. By the time I was 15, uh, the abuse was pretty bad and um, my father targeted me because I looked like my mom. So at that point, my best friend in high school went and told the school counselor that I was being abused. So next thing I know, DCFS is at my school. I'm 15 years old, sophomore at uh, the high school locally here. Mm -hmm. And, you know, police came and social workers. And that was the beginning of my journey into foster care. That's extremely heavy. Um, wow. Um, and then how has that transformed the person that you are today where you work now? So I think what my childhood did was it gave me so much insight and empathy into, you know, what children in the system are going through. So I grew up saying I would never, ever, ever be a social worker. I would never work with foster youth. Mm -hmm. I originally was going to be a physical therapist and work for the Raiders and, and travel with them. And then I thought, oh, I'll be a nurse like my mom. So I went into Azusa Pacific as a Jewish nursing major, and I came out a Christian social worker. <laughs> so <laughs> it kind of was funny because it was something I would never, ever have considered. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to work with the courts, and I didn't want to work with you know the system. And I had a really negative view of the system mm -hmm. from being in it. Yeah. So <laughs> as I'm sure you know. <laughs> okay. So yeah. When I first started with the county, um, a lot of the other workers would ask, you know, how do we get through to these kids and, you know, what can we do? Because I feel like so many go into that field to help others. You know, mm -hmm. they go in with good intentions, maybe, you know, because um, of things that happened to them or someone they knew when they were kids. Mm -hmm. And they go in, you know, bright eyed and bushy tailed and they're going to change things and help people. And, you know, but there was a disconnect between a lot of the workers and the kids. So when I first started, they had something called Teen Club. And okay. a Teen Club 
foster kids would come. They were in, you know, their early teens, mid, some, you know, 17, almost 18, ready to emancipate. So, you know, it was in working one-on-one with these teenagers that really let me understand what they were going through and I could share my experience. And even though I didn't go into foster care till I was older, the truth is I should have gone in much earlier. You know, we just learned what to say to people when they asked, you know, and when people would notice things, we would learn. We learned to just basically lie about it because, you know, the truth is I didn't want to leave my little brother. You know, my brother is seven years younger than me and he lost my mom. He was only four. So I didn't want to leave him behind. So I knew exactly what would get me taken out of the home and I didn't want to go, even Mm -hmm. though it was so bad. And people don't understand that. They think, you know, if you're being abused or neglected, you know, or these horrible things are happening to you, why would you want to stay? Well, it's not just your family. I mean, it is your family, but it's your school. It's your neighborhood. It's your home. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to leave my dog, you know, like you're leaving everything. And I don't think people understand that, you know, to be picked up and moved to a different community and to have to learn to eat new foods. The first foster home I was in, I had heartburn every single day. You know, I was a meat and potatoes kind of girl and these ladies were making chili, you know, from scratch, you know, and (laughs) I just remember I loved all the foods, but my body wasn't used to them. Mm -hmm. And so for a while I was actually sick and I couldn't, I, you know, I just couldn't eat the food and then you run the risk of offending people, you know? Makes sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So. And then now that you mentioned going jumping from foster home to foster home, um, given your personal experience and also now your experience as a social worker for DCFS, could you go into detail on who gets to decide where the child stays and how often do they get to stay within a foster home? Can you kind of go into explaining that? Yeah, so there's a lot of different reasons why children move from home to home. So for instance, my first foster home was in the city of Pomona. Well, I went to Glendora High and, Mm. you know, I'd have to get on a bus at 5.30 in the morning or a bus or two, I should say, to make it to high school on time. And as I said, I couldn't even eat the food. So I asked the uh, social worker to move me. And then I had an aunt that called and said, you know, this is not okay. You know, she can't even, you know, (laughs) handle this type of food and this kind of thing. So that's what made me move the first time. Okay. Right? So it could be something like that. Like it's like religion. It could be, you know, the culture is different. It could be maybe that uh, foster kid wants to go back to their neighborhood. Maybe they want to go back to their school where they have their support system and their friends. Mm -hmm. It could be that their behavior is you know, difficult because of untreated trauma Mm -hmm. that, you know, the foster parents or resource parents is what we call them now, Mm -hmm. that they, you know, aren't equipped to handle it or they don't want to handle it. So other reasons why children would be moved is maybe the family they're with is not able to take all of the siblings because ideally DCFS tries to play siblings together. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so if we have a home that's willing to take all of them or can take all of them, that's where we're going to place them. So other times the family just wants to be, you know, respite, temporary, you know, mm-hmm. and they don't want to provide permanence. Mm-hmm. But the goal is to always help children have permanence, you know, through adoption, ideally, if they can't go home or through legal guardianship. So, you know, 
and relatives hopefully, you know, um, are able to step up and get the training they need and clear the background checks. And then that's where we go first is, you know, relatives. And then we go to resource parents that have been trained, maybe people that don't know the child, maybe somebody, somebody that was a school psychologist or a teacher that knows the child, you know, Mm -hmm. maybe a neighbor, because we're trying to help the children feel that connection and have that connection to their family and friends. And that makes a lot of sense because there's a lot of negative views, unfortunately, mm-hmm. on DCFS and um, the foster care system. Mm. So we've gone, we've discussed a few of those challenges and now I'm really interested to see some of the highlights of your work. I know I had the pleasure of visiting DCFS in Glendora where you work and it was eye-opening for me. So could you discuss some of the highlights of like your job currently and like what what do you love about it? Okay. Well, so I emancipated from the system when I was 17 and I vowed to never go back into a DCFS office. <laughs> and I have been there now going on 21 years. So um, it's definitely rewarding. You get to help people, help families you know, talk to kids, find out what they want and what they need. You know, we're making big decisions on where a child's going to live for the rest of their life. You know, if the family is suitable to take them back, if, you know, the parents have maybe dealt with a drug problem or um, any other kind of addiction, if they've done the parenting classes, you know, the counseling, all those things that are so imperative. So I love working with the families on the in the position I'm in now in adoption, mm-hmm. um, I'm considered an adoptive placement worker. Mm-hmm. And what I do is I um, prepare the family to adopt. I do the paperwork. Mm-hmm. We have something new called RFA, which is resource family approval. I get to do those, the updates, visit the homes, mm-hmm. you know, get to really know the families and you know, try to make a difference, you know. And people ask me all the time about, you know, what my views are on this type of family or that type of family. I don't really care because I could tell you, as you know, living in foster care one day, you would rather be in a family where they love you rather than going from home to home and not Mm -hmm. having those connections, having somewhere to go at Christmas and Thanksgiving and having people to be there at your graduation and, you know, later on in life, you know, when you have children and having people that are going to be committed to not only you, but now your children and your family. Definitely. No, people like yourself obviously made a huge forever impact on my life. So thank you for what you do. So we've discussed a few challenges and I'll be honest, I had an extremely negative view on DCFS and the entire system, but luckily I had the opportunity to look at the adoptions divisions and how you guys operate. And it was just amazing to see how the social workers were just so genuine. Some of them even fostering children themselves and adopting. And it was just, it was eye-opening. So can you discuss um, the highlights of your current career and also the parental component and trauma attached to it? Okay. So when people ask me what's the best part of my job i always say helping people you know i don't care how i can help people i want to help people you know um we're helping put families together ideally for the kids to go home as long as the situation can stabilize and everything's safe but if the child can't go home we want them to have permanence through adoption um, or legal guardianship 
and to either be with relatives or to go to a family that you know really wants children maybe the family is infertile or maybe they just want to add to their family in my particular family right now i have four boys Mm -hmm. and i want my girl so Mm -hmm. we're actually in the process of adopting through the county not LA County because I work there, but we're trying to adopt through you know Riverside, San Bernardino, mm-hmm. Orange County, and that way not only can we have our daughter that we've always wanted, but we can help get a child out of the system. So when a child's in the system, many times they're afraid. You know they've been taken away from their families as we've discussed, and you know they they want that stability. You know, and when a child feels loved and has a routine and has stability, maybe they've never had stability before. Maybe mm-hmm. they've never had a home before, and so you just see that child thrive. Mm-hmm. And I've placed children, you know, and I've seen them three months, six months later, and I I don't even recognize them. They look so different. They're mm-hmm. you know. I mean, they have a glow about them, you know, they, <laughs> they just, they, they don't even look the same, you know, and it just, it's such a beautiful thing. And that's, you know, something I personally live for. My coworkers, you know, I know it brings them great joy when we are able to put families together, you know, um, whether it's the birth family going back together or whether it's a child that's being adopted. Mm-hmm. We try to go to the finalizations at Children's Court and be there with the families as they're finalizing, you know, and it's a happy time. But one thing that we always have to remember, you know, as just a human, as a social worker, as a previous foster child, and now we're adopting, that adoption is also about loss. You know, Mm. somebody's losing something, you know, Mm -hmm. maybe it's the birth mother that just couldn't get clean. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe she just couldn't, you know, stop drinking mm-hmm. or whatever the addiction was. Maybe it's somebody that is mentally ill that, mm-hmm. you know, didn't get on the right medication regime and they just weren't able to parent. That doesn't mean they don't love their children. And so, you know, people are, quote unquote, losing their children to the system. But I don't want to be one. I don't want to be somebody that judges and feels like they were bad parents or they didn't love their children. And, you know, just looking at it from a lens of, you know, people have issues. Mm. And when you're a foster kid, let's say a foster child, and we talked about this a little before, then has a child. If there hasn't been an intervention, if there wasn't some kind of counseling or parenting classes, you know, you run the risk of perpetuating that abuse and those patterns because you didn't learn another way. Well, you're definitely providing an extremely transparent lens, and I think that's extremely important for our audience to hear. And you're right, that trauma component is something that's not often oftenly addressed by society and all of the different fields that are created to help other people. Mm-hmm. So it's inspiring to see that you're bridging those gaps and providing therapy to people in need to mm-hmm. to stop those barriers and to halt that generational component mm-hmm. and to ensure that people have a good rest of their lives. That's right. What are ways that we as social workers can improve mm-hmm. in um, ensuring there is a streamlined reunification process or even bridging those relationships Mm. that have been damaged right okay and that's you know a loaded question but I'd love to answer it (laughs) so you know when I was working with the biological families trying to reunify 
you know, I would pick up the siblings and take them to a park and, you know, try to have these visits. We also have case aids that do that now. But, you know, as long as caseloads are as high as they are, and I know, you know, DCFS is working on that, but as long as they're that high, we don't have the time and the power to do that. You know, we need you know, lower caseload so that we could give our families more attention so we can mm. pay attention to specifically siblings and their relationships. And if they're not placed together, how can we increase visitation? We need them in family therapy because if it's one child that was targeted or abused and then that child was the whistleblower, the other siblings might hate that child because now everything blew up because this child said something, or maybe they were all being abused, but everybody knew it was a family secret and you don't tell anybody. Mm. And then someone told somebody, kind of like how I told my friend who told the school counselor, right? That and then sense. all of a sudden, you know, you have police and social workers, court, attorneys, you know, it's it's very convoluted. So I feel like siblings should have more contact. I, in a way, love social media for this because siblings are finding each other on, you know, Facebook and all these different ways, you know. True. And, you know, even through DNA testing now with like 23andMe and all these things, you're finding people. Kids are finding their birth parents, Kid, you know, which, you know, hopefully they're ready for that. I feel like every foster kid needs counseling, A, you know, I'm in the field, of course, I'm going to say that. But honestly, mm -hmm. you know, when I was a teenager, and I was getting counseling, and although it was fun to talk to somebody, I was never real, I never went to the deep core issues, mm -hmm. you know, out of fear or out of loyalty to my family. And so a lot of times, as foster kids, we sabotage, you know, if it feels too unfamiliar, too scary, we'll like, you know, we'll ruin it because I'm going to reject you before you reject me, right? Because Very we have true. so much pain. We have so many layers of pain. I feel like, you know, if you slice an onion and you see layer after layer after layer. When does it stop? When does it stop? <laughs> well, it eventually stops, yeah. right? Thank you for sharing the complexities surrounding um, individuals who are aging out of the system, individuals who are experiencing the system mm -hmm. around adoption, um, resource parents, mm -hmm. the birth parents, sibling contact. I mean, I think a lot of people, it's easy to blame the system mm -hmm. or to blame yourself or your or your parents, mm -hmm. but really there's so much complexity and trauma attached, but at the end of the day, despite the challenges, there is hope. There is. So that's, thank you so much, Allison. Once again, this is Refining Purpose TV. I'm Darla Cazzarelli.